Hi, I'm Elin Miller, and this is Everyday Reconciliation. This podcast is a hands-on look at reconciliation, what it means, why it's important, and what everyday actions non-Indigenous people like me can take as part of this national project. As you can hear, I'm a settler. I immigrated to Canada in 2008 and now live in Ottawa on the traditional unceded territory of the Anishinaabe Algonquin Nation. Last episode, we talked a bit about Indigenous sovereignty. Check out that conversation with Grand Chief Arlen Dumas if you haven't already. Today, I want to get deeper into one of the structures that's key to attaining self-governance, law. So I'm talking with the Interim Dean of Law at the University of Victoria, Law Foundation Chair of Indigenous Justice and Governance, lawyer and educator Val Napoleon. In 2018, Val co-founded the Joint Degree Program in Canadian Common Law and Indigenous Legal Orders at the University of Victoria, the first program of its kind in the world. She also heads up the Indigenous Law Research Unit, which she co-founded in 2012 to work alongside Indigenous communities, helping them research, re-articulate and rebuild their laws. Val is also a grandmother, an activist and a painter. Tansi, and welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you for having me. This is lovely. Can you introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about your background? Absolutely. So I am Cree. I'm from Northeast British Columbia, uh, what's called the Treaty 8 area of BC. Uh, my community is Soto First Nation, and I grew up... Um, not on reserve, but in that, that whole area. And um, I'm also an adopted member of the um, Gitanyao, one of the house groups, the House of Lujan. And I have a, a, a name in that house group and, and it's part of the Frog Clan. So the Gitanyao are part of the Gixan who are in Northwest British Columbia. Uh, right now I'm a, uh, the acting dean for the faculty of law here in Victoria. And I teach here, I teach in our uh, indigenous law degree program, which I can tell you about. I'm a grandma. I have four grandsons. Um, it is lovely. <laughs> yeah. So you said you didn't grow up on reserve, but in that area, in your community, yeah. Can you share what that was like and how it shaped your life? Yeah. So um, I think what's, uh, what's important is that it's, uh, it's northern, it's northern, northeast British Columbia. Uh, it's rural um, and small towns. And Soto First Nation is part of uh, a, a number of other communities. So for Soto, we moved there. Uh, starting in the mid-1700s from Eastern Canada. And we moved into Deniza territory. Deniza are part of the Dene uh, linguistic group. And through agreements with the Deniza, we stayed there. Like we, we came across Canada following an oral, like a prophecy from one of the uh, prophets for the Soto. And we traveled across Canada 
over a 12-year period, the last group, and until we got to where there was the Twin Sister Mountains and the lake. And our understanding of the prophecy is that that's where we would be safe. Hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a wonderful story. Well, just I just wanted to say, um, you know, reserve the reserves in Canada, you know, what they mean is places where Indigenous peoples who are registered with the, mainly registered with the federal government live. And so it means families and, um, it, uh, and peoples, but in and of itself, reserves are a colonial creation. So I don't view living coming from as, like, I think that people who live, who grew up in other places are, have other experiences which are also important to being Indigenous in Canada. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what were the experiences that led you to the decision to go to law school? <laughs> well, there were two of them, two main ones. I mean, there mm -hmm. were lots. But one of them was that um, uh, as I was aging, uh, you know, I had been, I had had the privilege of working with Gixan and Wet'suwet'en people for a lot of years. And um, what I noticed around me was that um, Indigenous women disappeared as they aged. They became, in the background, they fulfilled pretty stereotypical roles. And um, I wanted to keep doing the kind of work I was doing, but it's really sexist in Indian country. And so I realized that if I wanted to keep doing the kind of work I was doing, that I, I needed a better driver's license to be able to do that. And law school appeared to me to be a driver's license that would be useful in, in many fronts of my life. So that's one part of the story. The other part of the story is my daughter became pregnant with my first grandson. And I um, sat around thinking about the things I wanted to tell that little baby mm. <laughs> when he was born. And I wanted to say things like, if you want to do something, you're the one that has to go and do it. You can't wait for other people. And, right. and, and then I realized I hadn't done that myself. I had applied mm -hmm. to go to law school in my early 20s. Life happened. I didn't go. And so I thought, well, I better go to law school then. And so becoming a grandmother <laughs> was when I, when I came to law school. <laughs> yeah. Did you feel alone in, in the classroom, the only grandma in there? <laughs> Actually, there was a friend of mine who uh, had started law school a year ahead of me, and he was a grandfather. Oh, good. And, and so the two of us were their grandparents' club. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was pretty interesting. Um, I mean, the other aspects of this is that I had been in the background supporting people who are working on Delgamuk, that major title court action, uh, seminal law case in Canada. And so, you know, I heard and saw Gixan and Wet'suwet'en people talking about their law. And mm -hmm. I saw, you know, you know, part of that whole experience for for people and and so the idea of me going to law school was to find another way to engage with those issues mm -hmm. that um, I cared about. Yes I'd love to zoom out a bit and talk about law beyond its practice. I think a lot of people think of law as a written code 
that you need years of university studies to understand or that law is what you see uh, on law and order on TV. Um, can you describe how you would define law and talk a little bit about indigenous legal traditions and models? <laughs> Okay, so I used to watch Law and Order on TV <laughs> until I went to law school. And then I realized, what am I watching? This is terrible. <laughs> it's nothing like law, right? Yeah. Um, so what a, what a good question. So, um, so let me start by talking about what my understanding of Indigenous law is. Now, there's no one Indigenous law across Canada. There are different Indigenous legal orders, and it's important to think on a societal basis. So, for instance, there's a Timsian society, but there are six uh, Timsian or seven Timsian communities. There's a Gixan society, and there are six uh, Gixan uh, communities, and so on. So, there are if we think about linguistic groups and we think about the larger uh, body that comprise a people, that's a legal order basis. Mm -hmm. So it's this, it's not community by community, right? It's a much larger way that people organize themselves in this world. They organize their responsibilities and their relationships to one another through mm -hmm. decentralized legal orders. So law ultimately is a human endeavor. It's a public process. It's a collaborative process. Uh, every legal order has uh, precedent or narratives to draw on, like legal histories from the previous generation to draw on for the to deal with the problems of the present generation. Every legal order has the full scope of the work that law has to do, whether it's helping to solve problems with families or to manage land or to manage water mm -hmm. or governance or, you know, all of the business of human life, which can get messy, you know, mm -hmm. and, and so law is intimately connected to our economies. Mm -hmm. It's also an integral part of governance. We can't govern ourselves without law. And it's what enables a people to be a people is this overall um, human endeavor of law, which you know, touches all aspects of our lives. Within that, there are those elements that make law operable. So we have institutions through which law operates. Law doesn't operate outside of human institutions. We have authoritative decision makers. We have obligations. We have rights and we have guiding legal principles. And as I said earlier, we also have public memory or precedent that we can draw on in order mm -hmm. to solve the problem before. So law itself doesn't provide the answers. It enables people to figure out the answers to particular problems. Now, having said that about Indigenous law, the difference between our law and Canadian law and other state uh, systems of law is that we're non-state. So our institutions are decentralized, whether it's through families or through clans or through lineages like the Gixan. And so our op law operates on a decentralized basis in 
in our societies. And, um, but the work of law, ultimately, like, you know, you know the, the business of law, it's the same, whether it's for Canada or for Indigenous peoples, but the way it works is very different. So the, the mm-hmm. functioning of it is, is different, but the work of law, the business of law is the same. So that's a long-winded answer for you. <laughs> um, thank you. Can you provide an example of an application of Jitsan or other Indigenous law? Absolutely. Um, so uh, if we think of... Um, Intellectual property in Canada. Intellectual property uh, is, you know, it, it includes copyright, trademark, um, patents, and so on. And it's legislated. It's centrally legislated on a federal basis. And the purpose of that law uh, includes protecting the artist or creator, and to enable. Um, Uh, economic transactions around ownership of certain things that are created in certain ways. So when we think about intellectual property for Gixan people, there are resemblances to Canadian intellectual property. But Gixan intellectual property, which includes songs, um, crests, um, dances, other societal expressions are the structure of government. So they enable people to to see and to organize and structure their legal and political and economic business through these institutions of uh, names and and so on. So the, the underlying purpose is governance not the economic ordering in the same way for it as it is the underlying purpose for Canada. And so you have law that, you know, on the surface looks very similar, but the reason it exists and the way that it operates is, is quite different. And so um, that doesn't mean that in Gixan people don't also have intellectual property concerns, which are similar to that of Canada, and that those concerns aren't able to be met with, within federal legislation. But it's, it's, a, it's really important to have a, a um, larger uh, context within which to understand Indigenous intellectual property and so that you can see what the legal issues are, what the purposes are, why they operate in the way that they do. But why is it important to consider Indigenous law alongside Canadian law, or is it more important? Um, well, Canadian law isn't going to go anywhere, so we have to attend to it. But here's the thing. If you, if you just think about your own life just for a minute and think about all the aspects of your life which involve law, Canadian law, you think about um, how you're able to in- engage and participate in the governance of this country, how you're able to drive, how you're able to marry, what rights and and, uh, protections you have. You think about all the ways that you can own things, that you can, um, you know, you can engage in business transactions and so on. Those are all, you know, those are all examples of law in your life. All of those things exist for Indigenous peoples as well in terms of uh, the, the 
comprehensive nature of law. And once you consider that, what you can start to see is that law is a way of enabling, you know, people to uh, create meaning in this world. It's a way to uh, relate to one another. It's a way for us to fulfill our obligations and, and so on. So that's why Indigenous law is important for Indigenous peoples. It's what enables us to be a people. To assume we didn't have law would be to assume that we were lawless. Right. And you co-founded that joint um, degree program um, at University of Victoria in Canadian common law and Indigenous legal orders. Yes. It's so, so exciting. You know, listen, I get to do the most exciting work on the planet. It's wonderful. <laughs> so we launched uh, this four-year program in 2018. So our first graduating class is this next year. Right? Wow. So this is amazing. So they will have two law degrees. They'll have a Canadian law degree or a degree in common law. And they'll also have um, an Indigenous law degree. And the way that that works is that uh, a law degree program uh, in Canada is three years. The first year is, is on the core subjects. So for our program, the, in, the, we call it the JID, uh, it the first, instead of the first one year, it's the first two years. And what we've done is that all of the core subjects are basically double courses. So for instance, I teach uh, GIC sand, land, and property law alongside Canadian property law. My colleague, John Burroughs, teaches um, Canadian constitutional law alongside uh, Anishinaabek constitutional law. So each core subject has has um, at least half of the curricula is Indigenous from selected uh, legal orders. So you know, students when they leave the program aren't going to be experts in Gixan law, but what they will have is a comprehensive enough understanding of law and different ways of comprehending it so that they can think and work across legal orders. So between Gixan and Tsilkotin and or Gixan and Daniza, uh, as well as Gixan and Canadian law. So that was mm -hmm. the goal was to create, to, to make multi-juridical Canada real. Mm -hmm. How many, what's the percentage of Indigenous versus non-Indigenous students in your program? Well, we have, uh, we have a JD program, like a Juris Doctorate program, and we also have the JID, which is the, it's a JID, JD. Yeah. <laughs> so we have two degree programs here at the law school. So in the uh, JID program, it's the, the majority are Indigenous, but we, we always wanted to have room for people, non-Indigenous peoples, again, because of our commitment to thinking and working inter-societally. And in, we also have Indigenous students in the JD program, but it's a, it's a lesser number. This next year, one of the things we're exploring is to uh, open up one or two of our JID courses to more uh, non-Indigenous and Indigenous students from the other program. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we're exploring. Yeah. 
It sounds really exciting. You also co-founded the Indigenous Law Research Unit. Um, yep. And this program works with Indigenous communities to help them research and re-articulate and rebuild their laws. And why is this essential to reconciliation? So, um, a few reasons, I think. As, you know, I mentioned earlier the centrality of law to a people being a people. Um, and, you know, that's complicated now because of recent history. And, and it's not as if there, like, there are changes to um, uh, Indigenous communities and groups as a result of recent history. So for the research unit, um, the work is about uh, working in partnership with uh, groups or communities around questions that they've identified as being important for them. And so, for instance, communities will say, we want to look at our law insofar as how it relates to human rights. So we, we've had we're a project of looking at uh, Indigenous human rights from an Indigenous legal perspective, not from a Canadian or international perspective. So what mm -hmm. are Indigenous concepts of dignity and inclusion and fairness and so on? So that's, you know, but also communities will have questions about land or, or water or anything else and uh, or child welfare. And so we work with them. Um, and basically what the, the, the work is, we have several different methodologies, but we um, draw on the oral histories or the narratives that they have. And we work with the community to analyze those around the question that they have. And then we draw, we pull together all of those narrative analyses and we synthesize them into a, a report on that area of law. And then communities or groups can use them and they do use them to draft agreements with the Crown or to uh, build uh, a particular kind of program for their community or to develop uh, environmental assessment uh, processes. Like there's a range of different kinds of things that uh, communities do with those reports. What we also find is that uh, once communities complete one initiative, like so for instance, we've been working with the Sikwepmec mm -hmm. folks in the interior of British Columbia and we finished a massive land project with them and we have a, a report, which is on our website, by the way, if anybody wants to look at it. And then they said, well, we want to keep working. And so then the next project is on citizenship. And uh, so we have been working with them on, um, you know, Sikwepmik laws regarding citizenship and governance. So mm -hmm. how do people belong, right? So that's, mm -hmm. that's what's going on now. Yeah. So this is really uh, integral to to sovereignty and nation building. Yeah, so what's really important is that people realize that there is no intact Indigenous legal order ready to spring to life anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. the, the law has to be rebuilt. Mm -hmm. There has to be transparency in how it's done. There has to be rigor, um, critical perspectives, not be afraid to ask the hard questions and don't romanticize it. Law, law has to do the hard work of law, which is in messy human problems. And so if law is not capable of 
enabling people to sort that out, then it will fall by the wayside. Hmm. So it's a little bit about decolonizing concepts. You talked earlier about um, human rights, but that's that's um, that's not an indigenous concept. So oh yes, it is. Yes, it is. Hey, (laughs) (laughs) okay. You know, absolutely, it is. Mm -hmm. If you you know, perhaps uh, the language of but not in a sense of the sort of the human rights, the UN human rights. No, no. Let me let me just explain that. There are definitely indigenous human rights within indigenous mm-hmm. legal orders. Mm-hmm. There are rights of individuals and rights of collectivities and obligations that people have to uphold and to protect uh, the safety and so on of of one another in the legal orders. So, there's that's a a, a central part of of indigenous law. But what's different is that you you know. National and international uh, human rights instruments are connect the individual with a centralized authority capable of acting on their behalf. That's the theory of it, right? So it's mm-hmm. it's an individual relationship with the federal government, for instance. Uh, Gixan uh, human rights is there. An individual has rights, but their their responsibility to act on them is horizontal not hierarchical. Mm-hmm. So it's it's how they're organized. The clans, the houses are responsible to act on those rights. Mm-hmm. So is it more a, a collective right? How would... <laughs> no, it's an individual right. It's an, okay. So 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 this is the thing. There's a there's a myth that there are no individual rights within indigenous communities. There are individual mm-hmm. rights and there are collective rights mm-hmm. and there are co- in, at the same and mm-hmm. there's individual and collective yeah. uh, liabilities and obligations yeah. but they, that existed way before contact. Oh, absolutely. And they still yeah. exist. Yeah. Yeah. When you look towards the future um, and consider the legal systems in this country, what do you think are the most pressing challenges? I think that... Um, to take Indigenous law seriously as law. Uh, And if Indigenous uh, law is not articulated substantively and procedurally and so on, and and with uh, Indigenous institutions, that the terms of reference is Canadian law, and it'll be another erasure of Indigenous law. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. But the other thing is that the biggest challenges I see are uh, fundamentalism and uh, essentialism of Indigenous law and of Indigenous peoples, where, um, you know, and what that looks like is people telling each other what Indigenous law is or uh, assuming they know what the outcome of what Indigenous law would be without the actual application and engagement of that law as a you know, systematic reasoning process. Um, I think that another uh, problem is that there's there's a severe lack of resources for Indigenous communities to rebuild law. Like the kinds of rebuilding, you know, when you think about the violence against Indigenous women and girls, just as mm-hmm. an example, it's my pr- position that when Indigenous law is undermined, when it's devalued, when it's displaced and distorted as a result of colonization, that that creates uh, spaces of lawlessness and violence happens in those spaces. You couple that 
with the failure of Canadian law to protect Indigenous women and girls and Indigenous peoples generally, mm-hmm. that that exacerbates that those spaces of lawlessness within which violence happens. And so if we're going to do anything about violence against Indigenous women and girls, we need to rebuild Indigenous law. We need mm-hmm. to rebuild lawful communities that where the aspirations of safety is a part of uh, governance so that governance for Indigenous peoples is about addressing sexism and it's about addressing um, internal oppressions and uh, human rights violations. So um, other um, uh, another um, aspect of like or another challenge is uh, sexism with Indigenous within Indigenous peoples. So, you know, romanticism, lack of resources, um, treating law as just declarations or treating it as um, philosophy as opposed to as a a legitimate way for people to engage in their world and to manage complicated aspects of their lives. You know, those, anything that doesn't, that takes away from Indigenous peoples being lawful in the fullest sense of the the, the word um, that those are challenges mm-hmm. and those are big challenges are you optimistic about them being overcome we've been working with indigenous communities and on these questions and articulating indigenous law since 2012 uh, it's work that's doable it's work that is absolutely a part of rebuilding our citizenry. Like when people relearn, reclaim, um, reclaim the language of of their law, and reclaim um, the ways of uh, being responsible in our in our laws. Like all of that is going on um, in different ways. Uh, in different communities ac- across the land. And we also support people outside of Canada. Like, so in Canada now, like we established the first Indigenous Law Research Unit in 2012, and then we've been encouraging and supporting others. So there's the Wakotuan Law and Governance uh, Lodge, which is now established at the University of Alberta. And you can talk to uh, Dr. Hadley Friedland about mm-hmm. that initiative and the work that they're doing. There's also um, an Indigenous Legal Orders uh, Center at um, Windsor. And there's another uh, research center at uh, North Bay. So there are now four in Canada. And mm-hmm. then we encouraged, you know, Sami and Maori and uh, Aborigine, like other peoples mm-hmm. uh, to to take up this work as well. Mm-hmm. So you're collaborating with them in a we support, yeah. yeah, we support, we provide training um, mm-hmm. and uh, support people to to uh, take it up. We offer, have been offering, um, you know, Indigenous legal methodologies courses every year here. They're open to students, but they're also open to practitioners. They're open to um, community people and so on to take the courses. So, and then we do community workshops. We do a lot of um Outreach. We work. We we provide a lot of uh, public legal education uh, wherever there's an opportunity. Okay. So, um, I think that 
Um, I think that pessimism is a form of arrogance. I, I heard, I think it was Wilhelm Reich that said that a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm really pleased that, you know, there's, there are so many more conversations. Like last week I was at the Canadian Institute for the Administration of Justice and the, the focus was uh, Indigenous uh, law and justice. And so there were judges and lawyers and like 600 people coming together to take up and to ask these questions. Um, I'm encouraged by um, some of the judiciary judges who are looking at how to draw on Indigenous law as a source of reasoning to solve problems as opposed to looking at Indigenous law as a thing where, um, you know, as evidence or as fact, mm -hmm. but to instead understand it as, as processes, as legalities, as resources for, uh, for thinking. Do you see... Do you see judges uh, using uh, Indigenous legal reasoning in their... Yeah, they're starting to. In, in their decisions? They're, okay. They're starting to. So you can look at the decisions, for instance, by of uh, Sebastian Gramond, who's with the uh, Federal Court, the Trial Division, for example. And so, you know, he's very respectful, but when there's an issue involving Indigenous peoples or there's an Indigenous issue before him, he, and there are others too who are starting to do this, are, are looking at... What are the other resources? What are the indigenous legal perspectives on this problem? And so he's not saying that he understands or, or is you know, acting in, um, as an indigenous legal practitioner, but what he is saying is that, okay, here are some resources that I can draw on. Here are some principles that can be applied to this problem. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. Yep. So the Canadian law system can learn from the indigenous. Yeah, yeah. There's, and, you know, our students, when they go out into the world of legal practice, they're going to be articling and so on. Um, we don't, the law firms and uh, judges and other legal institutions, I hope, will be open enough to be able to appreciate the, the, the knowledge and the skills that the students are going to be able to bring that they've never had before. So they can help infuse uh, the legal teachings into Canadian law? Well, yeah, it's not, you know, that's not the overall goal. The goal is to create spaces for Indigenous law on its own terms, with mm -hmm. its own, own integrity. Mm -hmm. And, but it's a, if people, Indigenous peoples, want to draw on it through existing legal processes like the judiciary, or if they want to look at creating other processes, other institutions, they have some resources to do that so they, they can find a way forward um, in, in Canada to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. In addition to help, help with the nation building, they can yeah. help increase understanding yeah. So imagine if, you know, like Canadians could talk about these issues, mm -hmm. right? So they could talk yeah. about what makes law law, or they could talk about, um, you know, how are decisions made? Like who should be making them? What should the guiding legal principles be? And so on. 
what precedent should they be able to draw? And like these are like when we're working with indigenous communities through the the um, indigenous law research unit, or we're working with indigenous communities for our field schools or anything else like that. Those are the kinds of questions that we're engaging indigenous peoples to in. Like those are the the conversations. But wouldn't it be wonderful if if it wasn't just indigenous communities, but it was all Canadians? Because that would be a way to democratize law. Absolutely, that would be fantastic. Okay, so you're you're optimistic then? Um, I am optimistic because the mm-hmm. work is going on. It's hard. Um, you know, there's no shortcuts. It's it takes as much hard work to you know for Indigenous law as it does with any other system of law. Um, you know, you know here we have an Indigenous law degree program, the first and only one of its kind in the world. You know, mm-hmm. that's pretty stunning. Yeah, it is. It's really stunning. I was very, very um, taken by the point you made about missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and how, I guess, the the destruction of Indigenous legal orders created a vacuum that um, that Canada hasn't filled. That was a very yeah. st- strong point for me of the need to recreate Indigenous legal orders. Yeah, so that's not to say that sexism hasn't been an issue for indigenous peoples historically. Oh, it's an we issue have, everywhere. <laughs> it's an issue. It is. It's an issue everywhere. And we have oral histories to show that if we don't pay attention to um, what gives rise to sexualized violence, then the most vulnerable will suffer. And so we have oral histories which show that this has always been important. It's why we need law. It's because we need to take care of these, these uh, kinds of things. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Um, let's let's um, turn to my last question, and it's about what non-Indigenous Canadians as individuals mm-hmm. can do to contribute to reconciliation. Yes. Um, can you give three three recommendations? I can give more than that, but <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I think that one is to for people to find out what's the Indigenous legal order of the geographic space that they live in mm-hmm. um, and who were the indigenous peoples who were and who are the indigenous peoples from that place. Um, I think that um, that's the first one. The second one is to seek out more complicated conversations and to ask harder questions and not don't look for quick fixes or easy answers, but, you know, push, Push one's own discomfort. Like, you know, there's a real, um, I think it's really important that people be uncomfortable because that when we're learning new things, it, it can be hard to disrupt that which we think was is the way that the world is. And so we, we throw that up in the air for, for new information. Mm-hmm. And so we need more complicated conversations. I was talking earlier with some folks and I think it was John Burroughs who said something like, you know, what people want from Indigenous peoples is is that which is beautiful. And they're not necessarily interested mm-hmm. and aren't interested in the harder kinds of questions and struggles and, um, you know, the, the work that people are doing right across this land, whether it's to do with, um, 
you know, environmental assessment or whether it's to do with housing or whether it's to do with, you know, child protection, like and on and on and on, dealing with mm-hmm. addictions, like health issues and so on. So I think that, um, you know, yes, we are beautiful, uh, but we're more than that. We have substance and issues and recent history that we have to, we have to contend with. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, that's the a second great point. One. Yeah, <laughs> we have to accept that this is difficult if you want to make a difference. Yeah, and I believe in the pedagogy of discomfort. Mm-hmm. So the other, the third one is to consider the relations of power that are around you and that you are a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no place in Canada or anywhere on this globe where the relations of power don't situate people insofar as one another, and. Um, we, wherever we are, whatever position we hold, whether it's a social worker or a probation officer or RCMP or a doctor or, you know, whatever, whatever it is, that we make a decision not to perpetuate oppression and racism, that we look at where we are and look at the privileges that we have. And yes, we, of course, we all work for our privileges, but they come easier to some than to others. And then to make sure that we act responsibly uh, insofar as what they are. Can I just say a couple more things here? Absolutely. I, I think that there's, you know, we're at an amazing time where there are all kinds of resources for people like Jody Wilson-Rabel's Indian in, in the Cabinet. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a resource. The trilogy by Eden Robinson, you know, she wrote oh, Sound yeah. of Trickster. I love Trickster, those books. Oh, they're fantastic. They're amazing. Yeah, it's so such a richness. And then like Sherry uh, Demoline, Empire of the Wild and the Morrow Thieves. Like there are so many Indigenous authors. Like I'm doing a disservice because there's a whole bunch of others that I didn't mention. But the, the literature and not just the literature, but now increasingly the scholarship. Um, there's, there's, there's many Indigenous peoples who are writing, and it's really important, uh, really important um, resources for us. There's mm-hmm. movies and other works. Um, you know, I, you know, Atanarjuak is still one of my favorite movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's documentaries like um, Blockade. You know, Nettie Wilde's you know, documentaries uh, that, you know, she, her most recent one is Konalina, which is about the Taltan and the, the Taltan and the non-Indigenous uh, peoples in the Northwest of British Columbia. And that's a wonderful documentary because she doesn't hold back on the complexity. She explores the way she describes it is looks for the, for the poetry in every single person. And, and so what we can see then with all the characters who are part of this documentary is the fullness and richness. And, we, and that's what we can disagree with each other about, but we can't conflate each other to, to one-dimensional. We, we have to understand um, you know, the, the fullness of ourselves. Um, and of course, there's, there's many other uh, Indigenous uh, uh, movies and 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 resources too but i just think you think of what's available now as opposed to you know 30 years ago mm-hmm. it's vast it's a vast we're so lucky mm-hmm. <laughs> to have all of this you know yeah 
we're, we're lucky to have your your new law program in the research <laughs> unit. It's yeah. amazing. It's amazing yeah. work. It is amazing work, and I'm privileged to be able to do it along with my wonderful colleagues that, mm -hmm. that are here. Okay, thank you so much. This has been a very interesting conversation. Well, thank you. Take care. Thank you. I'm so grateful to Val Napoleon for joining us today. She's helped me better understand the complexity and richness of legal traditions across Turtle Island and all the work that needs to be done in resourcing and building understanding around indigenous legal models. Val specifically recommends that everyone learns about the indigenous legal order of the geographic space that they live in. Who were and who are the indigenous peoples where you live? She also reminds us to seek out more complicated conversations and to ask hard questions. I find myself thinking about that a lot as I speak with all the fascinating people we've had on the podcast. She's right that there are no quick fixes or easy answers, and we do need to get more comfortable with our own discomfort. My own ideas and preconceptions are being challenged all the time, thanks to so many of our guests. I also loved Val's point about power. There is no place in Canada or anywhere on this globe where the relations of power don't have an effect on each of us. We need to think about the way we relate to each other, and we need to make the decision not to perpetuate oppression and racism. We must look at where we are and look at the privileges that we have. Let's all make that decision. Thanks to all of you for joining me for this episode of Everyday Reconciliation. Until next time. Everyday Reconciliation is brought to you by Rio Tinto and Canada 2020. The show is edited by Aaron Reynolds and produced by me, Ellen Miller, along with Carolyn Smith and Aisha Jara. The artwork was designed by Sylvie Levy and the music was produced by Marius Miller. <laughs>